World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There are good reasons that social media giants try to scrub their platforms of violent and extremist material, but they may be removing crucial evidence. We examine how war crimes investigations are being hobbled by algorithms and good intentions. And in the southwest of England, there's a proud history of mining, one that seemed finished by the end of the 20th century. But the demand for minerals changes over time, and Cornwall may soon be going down the mines again. First up, though. Today, hundreds of thousands of people are flooding Iraq's holy city of Karbala for the Arba'in pilgrimage. It's one of the world's largest annual gatherings. And although foreign pilgrims have been barred this year, not even the pandemic could stop Arba'in from going ahead. There were some outbreaks of violence yesterday as protesters made their way to the shrines, holding banners and chanting anti-government slogans. Dozens were wounded in clashes with Iraqi security forces. The country's elected leaders are losing legitimacy and power. As their authority has crumbled, Iraq's Shia ayatollahs and the country's tribes have been able to set their own rules. That's a problem both for the government's grip on the country and for the country's grip on COVID-19. Officially, the virus has infected more than 350,000 Iraqis and killed more than 9,000. Nicholas Pelham is our Middle East correspondent. That's got to be an undercount. Whenever you speak to Iraqis, either they or people very close to them seem to have contracted the virus at some point over the past six months. And yet that figure is still more than in any other Arab country. In terms of its approach, Iraq is distinct among Arab regimes. Most have dealt with COVID-19 by tightening their grip, whereas Iraq gave up on lockdowns long ago and the government just seems powerless to enforce social distancing or the wearing of masks. Oftentimes, it seems that men see the coverings as an insult to their virility. And on top of that, you've got clergymen still organizing mass gatherings. So it sounds as if the clerics are essentially setting the agenda for responding to the pandemic here, not the government. That's absolutely right. The tribes and the clerics are both eroding the government's authority. They're the ones who determine the rules. And that's why they're going ahead with Arba'in. It's an annual pilgrimage to Kabbalah, one of the country's two prime holy cities. Thousands of Shia faithful have already begun walking from as far away as Basra, 500 kilometers to the south, and they're eating and bedding down together in wayside huts. The risk of transmission is only going to increase further when these hundreds of thousands converge on Kabbalah today. There's a real risk that Arba'in at Kabbalah is going to become a super spreader and send the numbers of infections even higher. So broadly, religious rituals are simply seen as more important than handling the pandemic. 
I think that's right. The government has tried to impose some restrictions, but by and large, those are on foreigners, not on its own population. It's limited the number of foreign pilgrims by closing Iraq's land borders and restricting flights from Iran. A former government health advisor told me that people believe that visiting the tomb of Imam Hussein in Kabbalah cures COVID-19. And the government also faces powerful clerics who are part and parcel of the political system. One of them, Muqtada Sada, who actually won the largest number of seats in the last election, has led a campaign to keep the shrines open and he's defied a ban on Friday prayers. And it's even got to this point where when the government tried to bury COVID victims in separate cemeteries, relatives went to those cemeteries and began digging up the bodies with their bare hands so that they could be given proper Muslim funeral rites. So this is really a government which doesn't seem to be able to control the situation. And you mentioned that the country's tribes are are also chipping away at the government's authority. I mean, in, in what sense? The tribes are just simply too powerful in much of Iraq. They're terrorizing doctors. Dr. Tariq Shabani is the director of a hospital in Najaf, a holy city in southern Iraq. And a month ago, a young man from the Hasnawi tribe died of COVID-19 in his hospital. And that night, as Dr. Shabani was leaving work, 20 of the dead man's relatives beat him unconscious with bricks in the car park. The hospital guards were nowhere to be found. They seemed to be just too fearful of restraining tribesmen. They thought the tribesmen's cars were loaded with guns. And the doctor was knocked unconscious. He had to go to hospital himself for treatment. And he's now trying to press charges. The CCTV cameras recorded the scene. But officials are saying that it would be far safer for him and for his family if he just let bygones be bygones. Dr. Shivani himself told me that tribal law in Iraq trumps that of the state. And every time a patient dies, he says, everyone holds their breath. And how is the health service coping with the pandemic more broadly? The population has very little trust in the health service at all. There are fewer hospital beds and doctors in Iraq now than there were before the American invasion in 2003, even though the population has almost doubled. There are estimates that some 20,000 doctors have fled abroad. And many of those who remain are so outraged by their poor working conditions that they're going on strike. I spoke to one manager of a hospital who said that he didn't have enough masks even to provide for a mask a day for his doctors. He estimated that something like 40% of his own medical staff had had COVID. There are reports that hospital directors are just so short-staffed that they're loath to let infected doctors go into quarantine when they contract COVID. And at the same time, you've got falling revenues because of a collapse in the price of oil. And that's just left the government with no money to hire thousands of medical graduates who are waiting to join the health service. The Prime Minister Mustafa Qadhami even suggested that they volunteer. So the health service in the country is just sort of seething with anger at its own neglect and almost contempt by which it feels it's being treated by politicians. And how much of that can you chalk up to that fall in the oil price? That's certainly been the catalyst, but you're talking about a health service that's been suffering from decade upon decade of neglect. In the 1980s, it was from war with Iran, and in the 1990s, with another war with Kuwait and sanctions, and then the US invasion, the battles against the jihadists of Islamic State. And then you've got a government which is spending more on war and security than on health. In fact, Iraq spends only about half as much per person as its poorer neighbour Jordan on health. And even that little sum that's allocated, a lot of that is squandered in corruption and waste. The health ministry is led by a technocrat, but it's full of the followers of Muqtada Sadr, who considers the health ministry to sort of be his fiefdom and money spinner, and their sort of blocking attempts at reform. Only last year, the then health minister tried to clean up the ministry, but ended up resigning because of what he said was corruption, blackmail and defamation. I mean, all of this taken together, it sounds as if both the government crisis and the COVID crisis are going to get worse together. 
Yeah, the government absolutely needs to restore trust in its health service. It needs to provide, at the very least, protection for its own doctors against angry tribesmen. It needs to ensure that it can be the authority that's going to get a grip on COVID-19. Otherwise, both COVID-19 and its hold on the country itself risks spiraling out of control. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Jason, thank you for having me. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The trail of evidence that technology leaves behind has long been a part of bringing war criminals to justice. Joachim von Ribbentrop, death by hate. Fritz Sauckel. In the Nuremberg trials that followed the Second World War, documents made by the Nazis on their own typewriters and copying machines were a cornerstone of the prosecution. More recently, the metadata given out by mobile phones has helped to identify suspects, as in a trial that concluded last month. The trial chamber finds Salim Jamil Ayash guilty as a co-perpetrator of Count One. Conspiracy. Mr. Ayash was convicted for his role in a 2005 bombing in Beirut that killed 22 people, including Lebanon's then Prime Minister Rafi Hariri. Social media have opened up a new front for war crimes investigators. User-generated photos, videos, and location-tagged posts offer a wealth of information. But the moderation policies of platforms such as Twitter and Facebook mean that valuable evidence may be removed, sometimes before it's ever even seen. Worried about exposing their users to harmful material and under pressure from governments to stop the spread of extremist content, social media platforms have adopted quite strict moderation policies to prevent being hosts for such material. Andrew Knox is a journalist for The Economist. No one wants to be exposed to a video of someone being beheaded or a kitten being tortured. So this is obviously all quite well-intentioned. But there are consequences to these moderation policies that the social media platforms have not paid sufficient attention to, one of which is the destruction of potential evidence that could be useful in the investigation and prosecution of war crimes and other human rights atrocities. And what kind of evidence are we talking about here? So social media evidence can be used for basically two sort of main things, one of which is to corroborate the accounts of particular incidents that are generated through other means, through eyewitness reports and such. And the other is to generate leads about these incidents, which investigators can then follow. This can come from all manner of sources. It can be that perpetrators of atrocities uh, post to, say, Facebook to brag about their exploits. And in doing so, they might give away the location of where the photo was taken, extracted from the metadata, or landmarks in the background, or even sometimes uh, you can trace where they are from uh, the weather that's visible. 
So in 2016, a Frankfurt court convicted a German national of war crimes based in part on photos that were uploaded to Facebook of him in Syria with the severed heads of enemy combatants. And this is sort of a new frontier for such investigations. Do we have a sense for how big the problem is of of content moderation essentially hindering those kinds of investigations? It's really hard to get a clear picture of how big this problem is because social media platforms are not particularly enthusiastic about um, transparency as to their moderation policies. But there are some sort of unsettling indications of the scale of the problem. So the Syrian Archive, which is a nonprofit that records and analyzes evidence of human rights violations in Syria, estimates that of the roughly 1.75 million YouTube videos it had archived up until June this year, about 21% are no longer available online. It says that about 12% of the million or so tweets it's logged has disappeared. And this can sometimes be a real impediment both to investigations and to subsequent prosecutions. But that notion of copies of this stuff, I mean, if nothing else, the the social media companies themselves hold it, do they not? It's really, again, unclear the extent to which that's true. One can preserve copies, but in doing so, there are all kinds of questions about chain of custody and about preserving them in the right way. So while obviously the Syrian archive preserving copies is useful, it's less good than were the social media sites to uh, preserve this material themselves. And it's also even more unclear how this material is handled because of the advent of algorithmic moderation. Now, that already means that there is less human oversight of the process and less information available to outside uh, sources about how it's done. And this problem is only further compounded by a turn in recent years towards using algorithms that make these decisions before the material has even ever been posted publicly, meaning that no one actually ends up seeing it before it's taken down, so to speak. So it's clear that this is a problem, a a growing one. Is anyone working on a solution? A solution sort of simple in principle, even if not in practice, which is just that potential evidence should be preserved. Many people think that an independent archive should be set up, or perhaps several, that would be accessible only to those with a legitimate interest, like court investigators or human rights groups. And the advantage of such a body would be not only in preserving potential evidence of war crimes and atrocities, but also in verifying this evidence, since obviously, given its provenance, it needs to be checked very carefully. So how likely do you think it is that that's the the ultimate solution here, this, this kind of independent archive? The capacity to preserve this material lies with the social media platforms. And there are various people involved in these companies who are concerned about this and working very diligently. But ultimately, decisions need to be taken at the very highest levels of these companies to engage more with this problem and really participate in creating a solution for it. That's sort of the only way this will really become a reality. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me on.
The county of Cornwall on Britain's southwest peninsula has a long heritage of mining. For centuries, deep mines yielded tin and copper, which was then ferried out from the Cornish coast. These days, the mines in the region mostly serve as picturesque ruins for tourists. But a discovery of the metal lithium first made 150 years ago might now lead to a mining revival. Cornwall's tin and copper mines were always rather soggy. They frequently filled up with water. Our correspondent, Mark Johnson, has been digging into the story. Now, in the 19th century, Cornwall's mining firms began to realise that some of the water that was swilling around in their mines was full of lithium. Back then, lithium was still reasonably new to science and there was no commercial use for it. So they simply logged these finds and then they carried on digging for the copper and the tin that they were after. But these days, things have changed. How do you mean? Well, these days, lithium, along with one or two other metals, is essentially making the batteries that power electric vehicles, as well as the big batteries that may one day help us better store electricity from renewable turbines, from solar panels and so on. So the demand for lithium is likely to increase five times in the next 15 years. And that is sending some junior mining firms back to places such as Cornwall to see if they can secure reliable supplies, even though all of the old metal mines there are now closed. So what does the potential lithium mining operation in Cornwall look like? Well, there's one company called British Lithium, which wants to get the metal from inside hard rock that it will get out of a quarry it wants to dig not far from the town of St. Austell. There's a competitor called Cornish Lithium that plans to extract lithium from subterranean waters of the sort that used to swill around the old mines, and it's going to get hold of that water by drilling wells. And both of these firms are saying that they want to be in commercial production of lithium within three to five years. And suppose they are. I mean, how does that kind of operation look in the big global lithium picture? Well, most of the world's lithium comes from Chile, Argentina and Australia. A lot of that has to go to China for processing before it can be used in batteries. Those countries are likely to remain by far the biggest suppliers for the foreseeable future. But battery and car makers worry that there's going to be repeating cycles of gluts and shortages, and many of them would like to be able to call on a broader bunch of suppliers than they have at the moment. In addition, electric car makers are quite keen for their products to be seen as the greenest of the green. That means they're doing what they can to reduce the distances that their raw materials must travel, ensuring that all their suppliers are held to the highest environmental standards, And all of this suggests that there probably would be a market for some British-produced lithium, provided it came at a reasonable price. And what about the people of Cornwall who have that rich mining history? What do they make of it all? Well, these days Cornwall makes most of its money from tourism, but it's still one of the very poorest regions in Britain and it needs new industries. Mining played a big part in Cornwall's culture for a long time. You know, there are songs about this industry. Lots of people who live in Cornwall have some nostalgia for it, and they'd like to see it return in some way. And that's especially the case if it can be done in a way that's quieter and more environmentally friendly than mining was done before. All that said, in the last 20 years, there's been lots of plans for mining all sorts of metals from Cornwall, and they've all come and gone without great success. 
companies in America and elsewhere in Europe are also working to open up untapped lithium reserves. And the Cornish companies still have to prove their technologies and show that they can produce high grades of lithium reliably enough to be useful to battery makers. So it's not a slam dunk as we speak, but it's definitely an industry that we and many people in Cornwall are keeping a close eye upon. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.